Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday midday and... uh... A little tired, but let's see what we can do. I'm going to do a little bit about tefillah today. I try to do every week. Uh, again, the tefillah series is sponsored by the Stefanskis, uh, for which we thank them. I was talking about the historical evolution of public prayer in the form that we have it, uh, which eventually emerged as an extremely important institution in Judaism, but obviously once upon a time did not exist. I'll tell you what I mean when I say that in a few minutes, perhaps. Um, I'm just following, I have no text, I'm just following chronologically. We talked about the Bais, reason by Shani, and I tried to point out, at least I think I did, that you had two parallel developments happening. I think, you know, like I say, speaking historically, I think the Rambam's uh, scenario is, uh, I don't know, not satisfactory uh, from a historical point of view. But uh, on the other hand, there's no question that there were synagogues throughout the diaspora, particularly in the Greek and Roman empires, uh, which equals the time of the Beis Amigdash, the Bayesheni. And uh, by definition, these became the place where people who are not in Eretz Yisrael do Jew things, and it's a prayer. So we don't have any exact evidence of what the prayers were, but it had to be something. And um, moreover, it's pretty clear that the prayers were not in Hebrew in many places, okay? It's not in Hebrew, I'm sure. And so, uh, because even the Kriya Satara wasn't in Hebrew. Uh, but we have no idea, because here's, I want to emphasize the following. When you're talking about the situation I'm describing, which is that there are Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean, the Middle East, East and West of the Roman Empire, in Bavel, which was not in the Roman Empire, which had a very large Jewish community, but also throughout uh, the North Africa, Egypt, Libya, and those kind of places, as well as the area that eventually became the Roman Empire, so all over the Mediterranean, you know, Turkey, what we call today Turkey, Greece, Italy, uh, France, Spain, and so forth. And there were Jewish communities everywhere. Uh, and Kabbalah beyond the Roman Empire. I mean, at the time we're talking about, listen closely, there were Jewish communities, vigorous Jewish communities, in Arabia, what you call today Saudi Arabia. That's in the Quran, you understand? So now there are Jews all over the place. Now you tell me that they were all on the same page? There was no sitter. And I don't think, there's no evidence that, you know, the way Rambam says that Ezra is based and decided to make a Shemun Ezra and spread throughout Kali's world. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Okay? There's no historical evidence, no records of it, no description in, in the writings at that time. And we have plenty of writings of what was going on among Jews in the, those centuries of the Greco-Roman period. In other words, uh, what you and I would call the, uh, the 300s, the 200s, the 100s, and so forth, BCE, and then the 100s, the 200s, and the 300s CE, roughly speaking. Again, roughly speaking. <clears throat> so there's a lot of stuff that people wrote about the Jews. I don't say it's all true or accurate. There's stuff that Jews wrote. I'm not talking about the Chazal. Uh, I have at home uh, two fat books from uh, that guy that was killed by the terrorists. What's his name? Stern, Professor Stern. <clears throat> what All the Greek stuff that's out there written about the Jews, it's a fat volume, and all the Latin stuff that's out there. 
about, man, a third volume of Index. So there's a ton of stuff. And they describe offhandedly here and there prayers, but nothing in a way that you and I would recognize. So what's important is to understand that there was nobody in control. It's Afkaris. So when it's Afkaris, it develops, you know, just uh, naturally, organically. So what I'm trying to say is like this. In some places, they may have prayed in Hebrew. That would probably reflect some Israelis moved, for example, I don't know, I'm making this up, to Sicily or to Naples or someplace like that. Since they were Israelis, and they shaykhs with other people from Israel, Eretz Israel, so they could keep up the Hebrew. In other places, that didn't happen, or maybe several doros went by, and they became more assimilated, acculturated to the local environment, and they didn't do Hebrew anymore, they do Greek. You understand? I don't think there's any evidence of prayers in Latin that I'm aware of, because the Iker Jewish communities were in the Eastern Roman Empire where the language was, was Greek. But I could be wrong. And it's very likely, I mean, it's very possible to be wrong on something like that. There were Jewish communities, for example, in Vienna, believe it or not, on the Rhine. Now, they're not identical with the Yekas of later. That comes later. They were there earlier. There was, the language was Latin or Spanish. So maybe they spoke in Hebrew. We do not know. What we know is not everybody did the same thing. That's the point I'm trying to get across. Now, I want to make another point that this is very important to understand. Not only is it that they didn't necessarily dive in the same way or even using the same language, but there's no way for you and I to tell whether or not hashkafically they were on the same page. Because you're imagining that everybody in the Bayashani period was from. But first of all, that's not true. Second of all, you can't define from successfully. And I'll tell you what I mean. The Jews themselves had a lot of places where people hashkafically screwed up. This is exactly the same thing as the Bayes Rishon. Okay? When they made things like the golden calf and this all this stuff, is in their crazy way, now I'm speaking from our perspective today, in their crazy way, they considered it possible to have from Yiddishkeit together with a golden calf. That's clearly what happened. Now, of course, it didn't work out, but I'm just telling what they, what they did. And I think I've mentioned, maybe some of you will recall in the past, the famous statement, Mamash did this effect, from the Yafei Toar, when he talks about, um, where is it, in Shmuel, in, in, uh, in Shoftim, Book of Shoftim, back in the time of the judges, when they had the Pesel Micha, and the question is raised, how come the church of the Pesel Micha was there for many centuries, according to the Gemara? According to the Gemara. Yushalmi was there for many, many centuries. And, David uh, didn't get rid of it? You know, Shaul didn't get rid of it? Shlomo, he had some from kings come later on. Maybe in the time of the Shoftim, maybe. You could say, That Pasuk is written there by the Pesel Micha, as well as by the other thing, by the Pelagos um, Vigevo. But later on, you know? So how come they never got rid of it? So this is something dealt with with the Badim Afarshim. It's one of those classics. You can get all the info in English if you look in the Menashe Ben Israel in the, in the conciliator. He's got all the opinions. And the most interesting, in my mind, is the Efetor, who I told you many times is like my favorite commentary, or one of my favorite commentaries on the Medrash. There's a big rove in Constantinople in the 1500s, you know, famous Darshan. And the Yafei Ashkenazi, and the Yafei says, you know, by the time Dovid and Mel came along, it was so hardwired into the local Yiddishkeit, they didn't want to mess with it, because he said, if you tamper with this, they'll drop the whole Yiddishkeit. You know what I said? So the syncretism was so powerful, that from Jews had incorporated stuff that really, from a pure, from a pure hashkafa, 
let me rephrase it, from a hashkafically pure uh, perspective, is treif. But in spite of what I just said, was part of the davening. Now, this is part of life. Uh, I'll I'll refer to something that you're familiar with. Machi uh, and you know, when it comes into slichas and before Rosh Hashanah Kippur time, when you pray to the angels, you know as well as I do, Machnis Rachman, that's it, Machnis Rachman. You know, there's a whole pil- pilmus on this back and forth, and there are many who said, many gedolim who said, don't say Machnis Rachman because you're davening to, to Malachim, which from a hashkafically pure standpoint is wrong. But there are others who said it's okay. Now, here's my point. Suppose I was one of these people that said, oh, you're violating the Rambam, you're not allowed. You hear what I just said? You're not allowed to say Machnis Rachman. You're not allowed to. If you do, it's like a Vodazara. And from a, again, from a hashkafically pure perspective, I hear the vart. You know, like the Rambam says, uh, You can make a case like that. Now, suppose today, in the year 2021, suppose I held that way, and I went to a shul, from shul, and they said, Am I going to say they're not from Jews? I'll say they're from Jews, but Nebuch, they're screwed up in some hashkafic way. You hear what I just said? I'm not taking away from the fact that they mean well and this and that and the other. But Nebuch, you know, they don't realize, or they do realize, but they they don't understand the gravity of their violation of the Hashkovic purity, of the philosophical purity, and they're, you know, saying things, that they're dominating in such a way that they shouldn't dominate. I get it, but I'm not saying they're not from. I can say that's not what we do in my shul. Or, by the way, in my shul we do say it, but I'm just saying, you know, someone could say like that. I'll give you another example that comes to mind. I'm just talking here. Everybody knows the villain to go in that trouble when he said, Baruch Shalom, Malachi Shalom. For the same reason. You don't want to get blessed by Malachim. I hear that. I get it. I respect that. Again, it reflects a hashkafically pure hashkafa. <laughs> okay. Can I use that expression? I get it. You don't say, Baruch Shalom, Malachi Shalom. You only get Baruch from Baruch Shalom, not from Malachim. I get it. Did the Vilna Gon, or somebody who holds like the Grove, is he going around and saying that everybody, the rest of us, who say, Baruch Yishalom, Malachi Yishalom, we're treif? We're apokorsim? He said, Nebuch, we're making a mistake. So now go back 2,000 years, 21, 200 years, and you'll find throughout the Middle East that Jews set up their synagogues. They had different ways of praying. This even applies there to Israel, to be perfectly honest. And there was no one matbeah that everybody's praying. So not only are there differences in languages, you know, do you do it in Greek, do you do it in this language, do you do it in that language, in which you run into the problem, can you ever translate properly from one language to another, but that's already a fancy schmancy intellectual position. Put that aside. Um, Hashkafically, what if you daven, and you're going to be surprised at what I'm about to say, what if I'm davening in my Jewish prayers, and I'm a from Jew, meaning I sincerely want to be Jewish, and all the rest of it, and I daven to Hashem, and also I have a couple extra prayers to Apollo and Zeus. You'll be shocked. How can you be mishtatif, avodizara, mamish, with the Jewish thing, you know? Um, but it happened. I think many of you, if you're listening to this, may possibly be aware of the synagogues that they sometimes show you when you go on a tourist trip in Israel, up north, I think in Tel Ars, if I remember correctly. Uh, what's the name? She took us there. Tommy Lassen, Tamara Weissman. Uh, with a, the tour guide. Um, there's a, they're very well known. You can Google it. And these are synagogues from long ago, and they were from shuls. 
And when they dug it, it shocked everybody because it's like Byzantine. They have mosaics on the floor with paintings and pictures of images. That itself is unusual. But they have idols. They have Greek gods. They have the Zodiac. They have the gods of business, including, I think, I'm going by memory, I think it was Apollo or something like that. How the heck can you have in a from shul, you know, a, 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 another deity? I think they also found in, um, and again, some of you will recognize this, in the in the ceilings, painted on the ceilings in Polish synagogues from the 1500s when they used to do it in wood. Also, uh, paintings of themes. Then a mom's trafe. How could it be in Polish? Our grandparents were doing something. Like Get over it. Get over it. It is possible, and people, um, you know, did and they're they what do you call shito? You know, they, you, you you mix together the pure Judaism with other things. It doesn't seem that they meant bad. They're just amaratsis, you understand? And uh, what is that? So what are your prayers? This is the problem when you have non-centralized, undirected prayers. This is the problem that led, in my opinion, in my opinion, to a trend which took a long time, took centuries, till finally it happened what all religion does to popular piety, and that is it tries to impose the central control for the best possible reasons, Sometimes for power reasons, sometimes for the best possible reasons, they impose a central control in order to make sure that people are no longer doing these things that don't seem bad to them, but from a strictly theological perspective, from a hashkafically pure perspective, are very bad. Okay? So again, how can you have shoals in which they mention Zeus and Minerva and all this stuff? Get over it! You had that! How can you do that at the same time they're reading Kriya Satora? It can happen! That's what makes history so interesting. You know, all these kashas, which are you know, unanswerable from a logical perspective and from a, a philosophical perspective. Uh, when you get to humanism, and history is a humanistic discipline, history studies people. People do things that make no sense. Uh, people do things that are tied to disastry. It happens. Among Jews, it happens a lot. And so you see the most interesting sorts of things if you care to look for it. If you care to look for it. And so the result is that you had a Hefkeris, and people, you know, um, develop various forms of prayers in different areas. I'm sure there must have been fights. We haven't, they haven't survived. I'm sure some people in the show say, oh, you shouldn't add this. And others say, you should add this. Uh, you know, I don't know what was going at that time. It, it is not recoverable information. There were shows that would be shows that you would dive in. Also, you had that as well. I remember Yushalmi talks about the rabbis going to synagogues and davening in certain shows in Rome you know, uh, and so forth. And when they wouldn't dive in, in Alexandria in the show, I'm not talking about the big show, but a show in Alexandria. So don't be surprised in Egypt if they had their own parallel base of Migdash. Who knows what they did in terms of prayers, Ashkafic League-wise, all the rest of it. I mean, if you have a base on Migdash, as the Jews did in Egypt, are you davening, are you coming back to Sion? What do I need Sion for? They tie it a base of Migdash. If it's a base of Migdash in Egypt, you tie it to the Shekinahs there. That's the whole show with a base of Migdash. They had their own Yom Kippur, didn't they? They had a parallel operation. You can't say, let's see Yom Brachim. Say, Egypt or, I don't know, you know, uh, um, to Heliopolis, Heliopolis, which is where they had it. So, you know, your kind of yeshivish attitudes, which are modern and postmodern, can't be superimposed on the ancient reality. Okay, so it was a funny world, and we do know that a lot of people took Beis Hamikdash and Yushalayim very seriously. 
and there were pilgrimages and things like this, those who could afford it. But at the same time, the way you dive in the home is the way you dive in the home. And then I haven't even touched on the fact, although I mentioned it, what was the impact of having a lot of gerim there? Or not only gerim, people who are not Jewish. I mentioned this previously, but you have to understand what a powerful uh, Messias this was in the Bayashini period. Uh, and afterwards as well. There, for a whole bunch of reasons, I won't go into now, historically, there were always, wherever you went in the Greco-Roman world, a lot of people who were not Jewish, who were interested in checking out the Jewish for whatever reason. And um, let me ask you a question. Do we hold that a guy's not allowed to enter a shul? Not true. We have nothing to hide. Okay? I remember as a little kid, my father was a shaman, and he had public school come in. They want to know what's in the behind the screens, it's just a Torah. I mean, for all I know, they probably thought it's a Lila Shtam or something like that. So it's important that you're able to show that we have prayers, we have a Sefer Torah, a Bible, Old Testament. It's nothing, we have nothing to hide in, in, in a show. I mean, let's put it this way. As far as I know, maybe in Lakewood they got something to hide. But I'm just saying, you know, there's nothing in the in the Jewish prayer service that would prevent somebody who's not Jewish respectfully from attending services. The same way, there's nothing preventing somebody who's not Jewish from going to the base on Migdash and offering up a carbon if you follow the rules respectfully. And a ton of people who are not Jewish in the Bayashani period for sure, because this, the Greeks and the Romans talk about Bayashani used to show up all the time in Jerusalem, each one for his and her own reason, and offer a carbon. Now there's ways, there are rules and regulations, you know, you can't do it, they have to give it to a coin to do it, but so what? Bottom line is, you're coming to Jerusalem, you're, you're respectful, you're being received respectfully by the Beis Amigdush, you're kicking in the money, whatever it is, the animal, provided it meets the requirements, and the Kohanim are taking over and offering up, I think it's a Shlomim, or whatever it is, and you know, that's that that's fine, you see? Beisi based feel yikari l'cholamim, and look at the prayer of Shlomo HaMelech in the Book of Kings, first part, when he gives his prayer and it raises the question, what is the purpose of a basic English? Because philosophically, but he says a whole long speech, and among the things he says, he said there are people who are not Jewish will come, and if they come respectfully, you know, and offer their carbon, or something like that, and it works for them also. So in the Bayashani period, you often had a lot of people who are not Jewish. Uh, let's now understand this well. Let's assume, I'm just making up the numbers. <clears throat> let's assume 25% of the of the attendees are not Jewish. Maybe it was more. Let's say 25%. So let's say out of a congregation of 100, typically in Bayashani period somewhere in the Mediterranean, let's say in Greece or Salonika or one of these things, let's say it's a show of 100 uh, people attending services on a Saturday morning with the Kriya Torah and all the rest. Let's say 25 are not Jewish. Of the 25 are not Jewish, you can be sure five or six or seven or one, something like that will eventually want to become Jewish on the one end. Five or six or seven on the other end are going to leave. In other words, they're checking out. This is a, a turn off to them for whatever reason. So they're not going. So out of, it says half, you know, it says 12. So out of uh, roughly half, are they either going to mamish become Jewish or they're going to leave. And what about the, the the other 12 are floaters? Sometimes they go to church on Sunday. Sometimes they go to the thing on Saturday, like Avram Avinu did before he became from, you know, before he decided to go whole hog into Judaism at the age of 48. 
So, you know, did Chazal say he didn't switch totally until he was 48? That means he was going to the church. He was also going to show him, you see? He was, he was indulging in polytheistic practices, even as he was slowly evolving Derech HaChakira in the Avram Avinu way into the monotheism until he became totally convinced that the two were incompatible. Hear what I just said? So Avram Avinu, until he was 48, even though you and I would say monotheism and polytheism are incompatible, you're wrong. And the proof is Avram Avinu, until he was 48. By him, right, monotheism and polytheism was compatible. Until, little by little, after a long progress, this is what Chazal say, not me, after a long, you know, time, 48 years old is, is well worn in life, until he came to the conclusion that it's incompatible. Oh, so that was a, a big step in his life, as we all know, and that's why he's famous, <laughs> right? A lot of people, then and later, was like Abba Mavina before 48, maybe they had feelings that monotheism is not compatible with polytheism, or stuff like that, um... But they, you know, they didn't come to the to, they didn't come to the total conclusion. And imagine if such a person decided, for whatever reason, that he wants to convert and become a whole Jew. Maybe it's for Shalolishma. He wants to marry a girl or something like that. So um, again, we don't know exactly what the rules and regulations were precisely in the time of Bayashani, because there's different Gemara suggests different ways. The Rambam, once again, in his way presents a neat package at the end of the 13th chapter of Hilchus Asuri Bia. I'm sure many of you are familiar with when he goes to a whole long week. I must have spoken about this. And the Ram has a whole reconstruction of the way he understands it. And that has powerfully affected the Alochic Messias down till today. Even if you go like the Rambam, but definitely if you don't go like the Rambam, you know, people who converted... Did they bring into the conversion a complete rejection of polytheism? Or did they say, no, in addition to that, I'm also doing monotheism. I had a girl in my house when my kids were little. I'm not going to say the family. It's a chasha family. And my wife said like this, do you keep Chal Yisrael? He was the first grader. Do you keep Chal Yisrael? We keep Chal Yisrael. We keep Chal Yisrael. We keep everything. <laughs> you know so same thing. Do you keep monotheism? Yeah, we have monotheism. We have polytheism. We keep everything. It's very important to understand you can have this mishmash, these mixtures together. And as I said before, the synagogue architecture often reflects this. The synagogue, the few synagogues that have survived archaeologically, the, the paintings and the, and the drawings in the synagogue totally reflect this. And it freaks you out today, but that's all because you don't have a historical sense to understand what I'm talking about right now. I'm trying to convey this across. Now, this is a process which was temporary, but it was there for a long time. By the time the thing is over, right... It's not like that anymore. But that is goofed up shot behind the Chazal, I don't even say Anshagesikdo, whoever it was, eventually, but I emphasize eventually, 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 it didn't happen overnight at all. Eventually, standardizing the prayer to whatever degree they standardized it. So, once they, and they did it in the way religions try to get a hold of popular religion, the formal religion tries to get a hold of local religious customs to standardize them. It's not only Judaism does it, the Christians, the Muslims, every has done that uh, forever. Um, there's a great book, Marpingen. I remember I had to read in, read in college or whenever. Maybe I used it in my class. You know, the, there was a Catholic um, people thought they saw Mary and they made their own rituals and uh, 
Oh, the church didn't look. It's in Germany, 1800s. And the church said, no, 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 you don't make the rituals. As well. You have to make them according to the rules of the Catholic Church. So basically, the church went in and imposed the norms on what was a popular religious um, <clears throat> phenomenon. But every religion does this as well. Every religion does as well. I saw a couple of years ago, maybe the internet in Israel, maybe some of you are familiar with this. I, I'm going by memory. There was some kind of a chair and somewhere. And it says a magic chair. If you sit in there, in this chair, it's blessed by some Sephardi guy. It says if you sit in the chair, you get pregnant. So all the women who couldn't have babies sitting in the chair and getting pregnant. Uh, no, it works. That's what they said. And... Um, so you had all these people, not from Sfarnam, you know, the traditional type and all that. They all want to go to the chair and kiss it and sit in it and all the rest of it. Uh, and apparently it worked, otherwise it wouldn't have any traction. Don't ask me to explain, I'm just telling you what happened. And I remember, maybe it was in B'nai Brock or near B'nai Brock, something like that. Some of you can remember better than me and write me. I remember then the Frum took it over, meaning some Yeshiva guys or something, or Rabbanim took it over. And it was so at variance with the Jewish religion. You don't sit on a chair and get pregnant. You know what I mean? Uh, you don't believe in a magic chair. Uh, but people believe in a magic chair. And so they turned it over into, and they took put the chair in a certain place, I think. And the bottom line was, now they, they took a thing that's run by women who give out pamphlets on Taras Mishpacha, and, uh, and they turned it into a Taras Mishpacha teaching center, uh, run according to rabbinical supervision, something like that. And I think that killed it or whatever. So in other words, you're not going to have some stomp Sparty lady who's not particularly Machbed in all the rules of Tarsh Mishpacha and uh, going to sit on the chair, get pregnant and everything would be great. But you try to normalize it using the word norms, N-O-R-M. That is what religion does. It takes a popular thing and tries to impose controls on it to make it conform. But the Jewish religion at the time I'm talking about was not powerful enough to do that. It wasn't centrally directed. All you had was basic mission that operation areas as well. They didn't control, they couldn't control all the communities in the diaspora. And so, like I say all the time, you know, the Mishnah tells you that, uh, what is it called? In Aspamia, they're not Bucky and Lishma, right? Why do you have to say funny nichta, funny nichta? Because in Chutzlaritz, you know, they don't know about Lishma, so they forget to retain. Were you dealing with a baguette that you brought from a basin that knew about Lishma or not? So, if they didn't know about Lishma, then they're getting there no good. Whoops. <laughs> good point. So, wait a minute. If I'm going to Spain or wherever it is, you tell me all the people I'm there, uh, 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 this is an issue you have all the time in Jewish history, more than people want to admit, uh, especially long ago. And um, what can I tell you? The, uh, this is the humanism I just said before. It, it, it's how life really is. Again, I'm just bringing to mind, I remember reading Rav Hankin when he was young. Like, first style, he went out to Georgia, Gruzia, you know, where the, where the Georgian Jews are in, in, the, in the country next, in the Black Sea. And uh, I think that's what it was. And Rav Hankin was an unusual person. Besides being a gun, he was a tzaddik, a very diplomatic guy, extremely diplomatic. And he went there, he said, oh, what a hefkeris it was. You know, what they call Chachamim and all the rest of it was not what you think this Friday Chachamim is. The locals, they knew nothing. So he said, the Kashas, forget about it. <laughs> forget about it. It was all wrong. And the Gittin and the other things, forget about it. Wait a minute, if the Gittin are all wrong, you're telling me everybody 
and the Grushas are Mamzerim? Uh, no. But, uh, 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 you end up with that kind of situation. So, uh, this is what religion does when it tries to standardize and normalize. Now, the big um, change, obviously, had to be with the destruction of the temple. Because, and I'm, again, I'm just sharing you the way I understand it. It's all I can ever do with the Qurim Beis Amigdash. Because, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a tremendous clop. Second of all, that whole way of doing Judaism, which is Iker in the Torah, all the Karbonus and everything, is gone. It's uh, gone. Now, I want to remind you, they didn't know it's gone. They all felt it could come back any minute. Eshtakeg, you know, uh, there were Yochum and Zakeh rules, and Les Pekka Rosh Hashanah and all that. You know, Yom Hanif Kulo Aser and so forth. They thought, we know this historically, that the Jews thought after Titus destroyed the temple, that was just a bad scene. But the next emperor, or Titus himself, will change his mind, and they'll get it back. You know and I know that was never going to happen, but they didn't know it at the time. As a matter of fact, what provoked the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in the 130s, which is 60 years after the Korban, when it became clear that Hadrian, the emperor, was not only going to not rebuild the base of Mish, but was going to put a pagan temple up there, which would be a Makkabah Patish to show that there's not going to be a rebuilding of a temple. So they didn't know at the time. So first of all, that was a tremendous uh, change. You know, in other words, what do you do to replace the base of Migdash? And uh, and there were many who who said, "Well, Judaism is over, and they're doomed," and they left Judaism, which I totally understand. I respect. I I hear that. But what about those who said Judaism is going to continue going on? Okay. So uh, by the way, a ton of people left with the Corbin. Uh, you want to read about it? Get the Doris um, Rishonim. We're getting Victor Miller, his uh, English uh, translation of Doris Rishonim, uh, and 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 how they describe the results of the Corbin which he says from a very Haredi point of view was a good thing because it means we got rid of all the junk among the Jewish people. You know, the Herodians, the Tzedukim, this and that and the other. Uh, be as it is it may. I mean, that's a particular opinion. Be as it is it may. But the fact of the matter is you don't have a base of Mishra anymore. So what do you do? So we all know, we're going to have to do, um, Davening will have to, there's no choice. After Davening will have to replace Carbonus. So in other words, all of a sudden, the synagogue became the universal institution in Judaism and the sole institution in Judaism. It used to be a temple, which is the Iker, and the synagogues, wherever they existed, were the Tuffle. Now, by process of elimination, there is no temple. There is no temple. Okay? You have no choice, but the synagogue should be the, the Iker. Saying by Deek, that's a new experience in Judaism. That had, in my opinion, in a dialectical fashion, right? In a dialectical fashion, it resulted in the rabbis in Sanhedrin, the Chacham, what you and I call the Tanoim and all that, saying, okay, if now the sole way of doing Judaism is through prayer, um, then we're going to try to uh, define prayer, regulate prayer, uh, see if we can purge prayer the way it's practiced in many places from a lot of its issues. That's why Vlam Hashim is going to come in later, but, you know, against the new Christians, which are the new group that had recently popped up. Um, and in general, meaning uh, heresy, heretics, different types of groups, what I described before is syncretistic. Uh, the Chazal can call uh, minim, you know, they call them by pejorative names. Uh, but it was it wasn't, was not uncommon. Uh, and so I mentioned before people who say, I can daven to Hashem and also to Zeus. Eventually, you know, people say, I can daven to Hashem also to Yashka. Why not? Or other variations of that. Minim 
is a wide term that can cover a lot of stuff. You get it? To cover a lot of stuff. <clears throat> now, um, I think, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, the one, you know, the Mishnah which says, I'm only davening in white. Uh, I think that's a Christian thing. You, you know, it's always a problem because because the uh, uh, the, 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 the Gemars are censored, right? Here, just one second. Let me look at this. Uh, here you go. Just pulling out my rusty, trusty little Gemara. Here's the end. Of, where is it? It's in uh, Megillah, right? Third parak, I believe. I think. Or is it the fourth parak? You know, who says, I won't dominate unless I'm wearing any overlift near a table. Yeah, here you go. Uh, see, Steinzels, I have in front of me, he has the uncensored versions of the Gemara and the Rashi and the Tosfas. The Gemaras we have have the censored versions. So it says, Homer, any, um, this is in Haftal on Beis in Megillah, third parrot. It's a Mishnah. Any overlift near a Tova I'm not going to wear colored clothes to the for the almond. I have to wear um, white clothes. So, uh, what is that all about? And and the Gemara says, oh, fire him. He can't daven for the Yomit at all. At all. Okay? And Rashi, and the Gemara says, minus He's got minus. So what does minus mean? So if you have the, like I say, the Steinzel has the the, um, the original Rashi and uh, uncensored Rashi. What does it mean, Shema minus Nizrikobo? Komrim Talmide Yeshu Hanotri it was an early Christian thing. It's the only daven in white. Okay. So that's an example, not of a Zeus type vart. And you had plenty of that. Like I told you, the synagogues in Tel Ars, these other places reflect the Zeus and Apollo Jung. But you can have now what you call a Christian thing, an early Christian thing, when the Christians were a Jewish sect, which was in the beginning, at the time that we're talking about, time of the Chorn Beis Amigashan afterwards. Now I don't want to belabor the point. I'm simply saying now that the base of Mesh was destroyed. So the challenge was uh, to take something which had been marginal, the synagogue and private prayers and so forth, and now really, by process of elimination, uh, move them to front page status, move to the front row, and this becomes the way Jewish people do Judaism. And in the absence of a temple, which was a physical building, they united Claudius Yisrael, that's one of the things the base of Megdush is, that all the Jews hold by the base of Megdush, and they would come from all over the world, and would come pilgrimage ceremonies, as we know. And I'm not talking halachi pilgrimages, no, Pesach Shani, if you're listening this far away. People came from far away because they wanted to, okay? Particularly Pesach, but not only for Pesach. <clears throat> all that is now gone. Uh, all that is gone. It didn't take too long before the Romans wouldn't allow Jews in altogether. So it's not like you had the Kotel. Uh, within a short while, you didn't even have the Kotel. You know, Jerusalem was off limits <clears throat> to the Jews for many centuries afterwards. I always say when you talk about the Talmud Yerushalmi, it's a misnomer because at the time of the Talmud, there was no Yerushalayim. Jerusalem was a, a, a Galicia city where Jews were not allowed to enter. Jews were not permitted to enter there until the Arab times. So there's no base on Migdash. There's nothing physical. There's no Kotel. So what do you have as a central kind of a rallying point? You can't have a group unless you have some basic institutions of group identity. By default, willy-nilly, whether you like it or not, it's going to have to be prayer. Right? And the synagogue as an institution, not a single synagogue, but the synagogue as a metzius, 
will become, and will have to become, um, the the Jewish place. And prayer, davening, will have to become the Jewish thing. You can't expect everybody to have a Talmud and learn, but you can expect everybody to pray or participate in prayers in some kind of fashion. That's how you show that you are Jewish. Okay? That's how you're not Polish men at Sibor. Again, you don't even, as we know from the Mishnah and the Gemara, you know, the, what is it? The, the, the Shatz is, is um, Motsi Mishina Boki, correct? Notice people come, it's totally expected that people will come to the synagogue and be illiterate and not be able to read and write and not know the sitter and, you know, maybe only know Greek or whatever. That's okay. We will have somebody called a Shatz, a Shliach Sibra, to be Motsi people. The point is, show up. By, 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 in other words, the prayer is going to have now one of two central functions, which are always in clash, but they're both there at the same time in tandem. By coming to Shul, you show you remember the Seabird, which is hugely important. And then there's the function of prayer Breslow style, which is I want to talk to God. <laughs> you know what I mean? That the, the religious, the pietistic uh, 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 impetus. You know, the person wants to have a, a, a relationship with the great infinite out there, and infinite's not even the right word. Uh, so you have the spiritual side, you have the communal side, if I can use that. Which is more important? That's a great question. And the answer is, Judaism has never said one's more important than the other. You could even argue the communal side's more important, but I don't get in that right now. So, I close with saying that you have to see the Churm Beis Amigdash as the key uh, watershed in the history of prayer, uh, and it required it created a situation a vacuum which had to be filled. Uh, the only way to fulfill it was by elevating the synagogue to a status it never had before, not a marginal but a central one, and then that's going to have to lead ineluctably to a situation in which the synagogue is going to have to be filled with a Jew thing, and I think, in my opinion. This is going to lead the Chazal to start saying, okay, what's Tutsuk out there in the synagogues that we never paid so much attention to before? And how can we uh, clean out the mistakes that are happening in the synagogues? The syncretism, the double religion, like I said, the compatibility, incompatibility, one group and the other. Uh, and, they, and they're going to try their best to do that. This is going to lead, uh, after the Korban, to... Eventually, what's going to emerge as a Shuman Esrei. Talk about that next time. And um, But as you know, Amat and uh, one of the two points in Amat is going to be to provide a commonality. The other one's going to be to purge what they consider to be um, the wrong elements, even though people might mean well or not mean well or something like that. Uh, and we're going to impose, as religions do, a central organized and uh, purified kind of uh, ritual uh, to uh, to enable people, you know, at least not to say the wrong things. Uh, this is how, as we all know, davening is going to eventually emerge. And the dumbest Jew today, if he or she picks up a Shemonestre from an Archibald Seder, even if they read in English, they're not going to say anything wrong because they're using the words that have already been worked out by the experts to make sure they don't have anything wrong. Okay, as I said before, that's enough. Uh, to, to, to cover the watershed period and now next time I hope to go through the post-watershed period once again I thank the sponsors the Ransky family and we wish everybody a good week
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.